I became a follower of Jesus when I was a freshman in college. I'd grown up in a Christian family. I grew up with mom, a mom and dad that were first-generation Christians. That means that their parents were not Christians, but they later led their parents to Christ. So I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. I, I grew up around Christianity. But growing up around Christianity and growing up in a Christian home is not the same thing as being a follower of Jesus Christ. It wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I, I was born again into a personal relationship with God through Christ. I began to understand what it was to have a relationship with God. But because I'd grown up in the church and had seen a lot of Christianity lived out in front of me in a lot of people's lives in a very positive way, <laughs> I made a mistake early on in my Christian journey. The mistake that I made early on in my Christian journey was that I confused spiritual maturity with spiritual activity. I thought that the more I did for the Lord, the happier the Lord was with me. Now, I was reading a devotional this week, and I came across this quote by Henry Blackaby. It's not on the screen, but here's what he said. We are so actively or are so activity-oriented that we assume we are saved for a task to perform rather than for a relationship to enjoy. And that's exactly where I was living. I assumed that I'd been saved for a task to perform, that God had brought me into relationship with himself, and now the goal and the objective of my, my life was to live for God, to try to please God, to try to honor God, to try to obey God. And so the first decade or so of my Christian life was exhausting because I tried really hard to live the Christian life. And no matter how hard I tried, I never seemed to measure up. There were always people, I would go to church and I would look at their lives and no matter how hard I tried or how dedicated I became or how many commitments or recommitments I made, I couldn't even live up to the people around me, much less live up to the standard that I understood to be the Christian life in the Bible that Jesus had demonstrated for us. It was so frustrating for me that there were even some verses in the Bible that just didn't make any sense to me personally. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes this statement. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, if you know it, what does he say? Rest. Rest. That's a good word, amen? How many of you need some rest, huh? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, all who are exhausted, and I will give you rest. And then he said, for my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is? You hear those? Rest. Easy. Light. 
Does that describe your Christian experience? Because I'm going to be honest with you, for the first decade of my following Jesus, those words could not have been further from the definition of what I was experiencing. I didn't know rest. I knew work. I didn't know easy. I knew difficult, hard, trying, commitment, dedication, resolve, determination, willpower. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? I didn't know freedom. I'd simply exchanged one set of bondage for another. I was living under the guilt of never being able to measure up to what I thought God expected of me. Freedom? Are you kidding me? The operative word for my Christian experience for the first decade was performance. Every day I was trying to live up to a standard that I thought God expected of me. And how could I do any less after what I read in the Bible about all he'd done for me to save me and give me eternal life and forgive me of my sin? Now the expectation was it's on me to live up to what he'd called me to. And then God brought me to a place of real brokenness in my Christian life. If you've been walking with God for any length of time at all, you know what I mean when I say a period or a season of brokenness. One of those times when God just brings you real close and he begins to strip you of the props and the things that help you to be comfortable. I won't tell you the whole story, but the end result was just real brokenness. And in that period of brokenness in my life, God brought a mentor into my life. It's a man that I've told you about before. His name is Clyde Cranford. And Clyde was one of those guys that just knew what it was to walk with God. Clyde was one of those people that when you got around him, it was just as if God came in the room. And I don't say that to put Clyde on a pedestal. I say that to say Clyde knew what it was to live with God all over him. And Clyde began to show me that what God had invited me into was not spiritual activity. What God had invited me into was intimacy. That what God's call on my life was, was not just ministry. It wasn't performing for him. What God had invited me into was an intimate love relationship with himself. And everything that God desired to do through my life, he did out of the overflow of what he was doing in my life. And it wasn't until I came to that period of brokenness and that discovery that God showed me that I really began to experience what it was to be free. 
few weekends ago, we began a series here at Hope simply entitled, The Life of a Jesus Follower. And in reality, everything that's packaged into this series, God began to first do in my own life after I'd been saved about 10 years, but I was in that period of brokenness. And God began to literally set me free from the bondage of religion and performance and trying. And I began to understand for the first time what it really meant to live the life of a Jesus follower. What it meant to allow Christ to literally live his life in and through me. And and the, the foundational statement that we've been using each weekend is that the life of a Jesus follower is all about what? Say it with me. Relationships. When you came in today, you were given a listening guide. In this listening guide are a copy of the notes that I'm going to be going through this morning, and I want you to to take that and follow along as we, we walk through this morning because I really want you to write these things down. But I don't know that there's another message that I ever preach anywhere at any time in my life that is more the story of what God's done in my life than what I'm sharing with you this morning. I don't know that there's anything that I ever preach that I'm more passionate about, that, that I, I'm so excited, and, and I would also come into a service with so much anticipation because I've just seen through the years God take these truths and literally set people free. Let me tell you what's going to happen for some of you today. You came in here, some of you knowing you were in bondage and you're going to leave free, Some of you came in here not knowing you were in bondage. And you're going to experience freedom too. Last weekend I gave you a summary of the Christian life. I I said there are two goals. First of all, there's an overall goal. There's a big picture goal, and it's really the the, the whole goal of, of what it is to be a Christian. And we simply said the overall goal is to know God. That's the big picture. Everything about following Jesus is first and foremost about an intimate love relationship with God, where he's brought us into relationship with himself so that we could know him. But then we said there was a second goal. It's the daily goal. If the big picture is to know God, then here's the daily goal. It's simply to spend time with God. Here's your goal today. Let me tell you why you're in here. You're not in here today to go through the motions of church because it's what you have to do to be a good Christian. You're in here today to spend time with the Father. So I want to ask a question that's really the question of this weekend following up to what we did last weekend, and here's the question, why? Why is spending time with God so important? And to answer that question, I want to start by asking three more questions. And here's the way this happened for me, all right? Clyde was discipling me. He was pouring these truths into my life. And Clyde sat across a desk from me one day, and Clyde asked me the three questions that I'm about to ask you. Now, you have an advantage that I did not have. When I was sitting across the desk from Clyde, I had to answer out loud. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front, I missed them, all right? I blew this this whole test. I, I just, I failed miserably. Now, 
I do not want you to answer out loud, all right? Don't do that. I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot this morning, but I do want you to answer in your heart. That's why I've given it to you in print form so you can write it down. Don't say it, all right? Because I want you to think about these things before you answer them. But there's three questions I want to ask to answer the first question. Here it is. Does a Christian want to sin? Does a Christian want to sin? When Clyde asked me that question, my immediate response was, well, absolutely I want to sin. If I didn't want to sin, it wouldn't be temptation. That's why it's temptation, because I do want to sin. So, uh, uh, yes, a Christian does want to sin. And he said, well, Vance, that's sort of true. There is a part of me, my flesh, that still longs for the things of this world. But now that I've been born again to a relationship with God, Christ in me, there's the, the new creation in Christ no longer longs for the things of this world. I now long for the things of God. And that's why as a Christian now, when I do sin, I thought that's what I wanted. I thought that's what I desired. But as a Christian, as soon as I do make that choice, immediately I realize that's not what I wanted at all. It's what my flesh thought I wanted. But when I grab a hold of it, it doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't fill me. It doesn't bring me peace. Because what I want now is the life of Christ. What I now desire is to please and honor God. And even though there are times in my life when I choose to do the opposite of that, very quickly the Spirit of God shows me on the inside as a follower of Jesus. Now that's no longer what I want at all. So the answer to the question is no. So then he asked me a second question. Does a Christian have to sin? Does a Christian have to sin? Now before you answer that question, I want you to look at two scriptures that are on the sheet that I've given you there, that little handout. The first one is Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what it says. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is, what is the next word? Freed from sin. The scripture says that in Christ I have been freed from sin. The next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Look what it says No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. That is very important. It doesn't say you and I are, but it says God is. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure. You hear what the Bible said there? And every single solitary moment of temptation, not based on my faithfulness to him, but his faithfulness to me, God in his amazing grace provides me with a way of escape in every single moment of temptation. Now, I know what some of us are thinking. Some of us in the room are students of theology, and we love to, to read theological works. And, and you're probably thinking exactly what I was thinking when Clyde posed this question to me. And the question I had was, well, what about my depravity? You say, well, what's depravity? 
Well, theologians define it this way. It, it means that apart from the grace of God, I would run headlong into every form of wickedness. That apart from God's grace, I will sin. But as a Christian, listen to me, you no longer have to live apart from the grace of God. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 5 says it is that grace now in which we stand. Not only that, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says that you and I have been given everything we need to live a godly life. Look at it on the sheet there, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life or to live a, a, to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see it right there? He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That literally means that everything you and I need to live a godly life. We're not waiting on some second work of grace. We're not waiting on some other experience in our lives. The Bible said through the true knowledge of Him, through the true knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I were given absolutely everything we need to live a godly life. You can go down the list and start naming all the things we've been given by His grace, but He's given us everything that we need to live a godly life. Now, the answer to the question then is no. Does a Christian want to sin? No. Does a Christian have to sin? No. Then that leads me to a third question. And I, I'll tell you before I ask it, this third question is painful. When Clyde first asked it to me, I didn't like the answer at all. Here's the third question. If we don't want to sin and we don't have to sin, then why do we sin? Now, when Clyde asked me these questions, I'd already blown the first two like I told you. I mean, I was sitting there with my seminary degrees hanging on the wall behind me, and I was failing the test. By the time he got to the third question, I wasn't answering But the real reason I wasn't answering is because I didn't know. And the answer is found in a verse of Scripture that I want you to turn to in your Bible, or you've got it right there on the sheet, either one, but you can turn there. It's John chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus simply said, If you love me you will keep my commandments 
Let me tell you how I'd heard that verse my whole life. As a Christian, here's how I'd heard that verse my whole life. If you love me, you better keep my commandments. Emphasis on keep my commandments. Now, I'm not saying that's the way that, 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 that the people that I heard say it said it. I'm just telling you that's the way my ears interpreted it. That now that, 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 that it was my responsibility to show God how much I love Him by obeying Him. And when you hear it that way, all the emphasis goes on obedience. I'm to focus on doing the right things and not doing the wrong things so that I can show God, God, here's how much I love you. Look, look how obedient I am. Look how I'm doing all the right things. God, you know that I love you, and here's the proof. You know the problem? When you try to live like that, anybody done that successfully yet? No matter how hard I tried, I never had one single moment of one single day where I felt like, well, I'm ahead of the curve now. Can I give you another way to hear that verse? This is what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Emphasis on love me. Emphasis on the relationship. You see, obedience is not the focus of the life of a believer. Obedience is the fruit of the life of a believer who's living focused on an intimate love relationship with God. Clyde said it this way, our obedience to Christ is in direct proportion to our love for Christ. Here's what Clyde said. Vance, the reason you don't obey God is because you don't love God. (laughs) Now, when he said it, My first reaction was, I got mad. I mean, I wanted to come across the desk mad. I was was furious. How dare you? Do you not know the last decade of my life, how hard I've tried? How dare you? You know the problem? It was right there in the book. If you or I, if we have an area of struggle in our lives, if we have an area where where we wrestle with obedience, it's a constant frustration, it's that thing that gets us. Listen, you and I don't have an obedience problem. We got a love problem. You see, I love that more than I love him. I love me is the root of it. I love me. 
I want what I want. I want what I think thinks make me happy. I want the things that I think will give me pleasure and satisfaction. I choose my way. I love me more than I. That's what the Jesus said. If you love me. So I want to put it up on the screen in the form of a paradigm that I'm going to walk you through. It starts with the word sin at the top. And it says we sin right out of John 14, 15 because we don't love God. Now, don't misunderstand what, what Clyde or what I'm, I'm saying today. It's not that we don't love him at all. It's that we don't love him the way we could or should love him. If I have areas of struggle, if I have situations in my life where I rest, it's not that I don't love God at all, but it's that I don't love Him like I could love Him. You see, my obedience is in direct proportion to my love relationship. Well, it raises another question. Why don't we, why don't we love Him more? Well, the answer is because we don't know God. And it's not, again, that we don't know Him at all. It's that we don't know Him like we could know Him. Twenty years ago, twenty years ago this month, I stood before a congregation of people with my bride-to-be, and I declared my love for her. I stood before a congregation and said, I love this woman and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. Now, I love her today like I could have never loved her 20 years ago. Because you see, I know her today like I did not know her 20 years ago. You see, I've seen her as a wife, as a mother, as a partner in ministry. I've witnessed her sacrifice and her compassion and her tenderness and her care and her servant spirit. And the more I've come to know her, the more I love her. You know the problem with most of us as Christians? Our knowledge of God begins and ends with the gospel. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's good news, amen? Hey, that's a good place for an amen. That's good news, amen? Wonderful truth. Thank God for the glorious gospel that Jesus did for us, what we couldn't do, left to ourselves. But listen to me, that's one verse. He gave us 66 books. The rest is not filler. God wants us to know Him. And He gave us His Word that we could understand His character, that we could know who He is, that we could see what He's done, that we could understand His faithfulness and His glory and His provision and His power and His strength and His omnipotence, all those things about Him. 
The Bible says, listen, the Bible says in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. You see, I can only love him in response. And the more I love him, listen, there's not anything you'll ever learn about God that doesn't produce a response of love for him. We don't know him. You know why I get so nervous when the circumstances in my life get a little out of kilter? Because I don't know him. You see, if you knew him, the circumstances wouldn't upset you. Because you know he holds those in his hand. He sovereignly ordained them. He's in control of them. And he's going to see you out through them on the other side. The reason I worry, the reason I fear, the reason I get angry, the reason I choose to, to sin is because I don't know him. You see, if I knew him, I'd know that what he said is better than that. Well, it raises another question. Why don't we know him more? And the answer is we don't spend time with him. I said a moment ago, I, I love my wife, Christy, like I could have never loved her 20 years ago. What's made the difference? 20 years. We spent a lot of time together. What if I had, what if I had proposed to my wife like this? What if I would said, Christy, I love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And here's how it's going to look. I'm going to come see you every Sunday morning. I mean every. Well, unless it's a ball game or, you know, uh, I'm not feeling too good. But other than that, I'll be there every Sunday morning. I tell you what, I'll even get together with a small group of people once a week and you can come. You're not going to see me very much. Well, well, I'll take that back, unless I need something. Now, if I need something, I'll be calling. <laughs> if I need something, I will do whatever it takes to get your attention. If I'm in a point of need, I will make sure you know I'm here. <laughs> now, we laugh at that. Why? Because that's ridiculous. No woman in her right mind would accept a proposal like that. No man in his right mind would offer a proposal like that in arm's length, right? <laughs> Why? Because that is not a love relationship. That is ridiculous, Pastor. It is ridiculous. God, I want to give you my life. Lord, I want to know you. God, I want to live for you. Lord, I want to be a vessel for your glory. And I'll be there every Sunday morning. I 
I'll even go to a small group once a week. And you know what's sad? We think that's normal. We laugh about it when we talk about it in the context of a marriage-love relationship, but in the context of being a good Christian, that's actually at the top of the list. We don't spend time with Him. He's invited me into a constant moment-by-moment love relationship where I'm to live my life out of the overflow of intimate fellowship with God. And I can't even sit through church without looking at my watch. Well, why don't we... Spend time with Him. The answer is because we don't see the need. Let me illustrate it. How many, of you, how many of you think spending time with God is a good thing? Let me see your hand. Hold them up for a minute. Just hold them up. All right, that's what I thought. You can put them down. How many of you think that spending time with God on a daily basis would benefit and bless your life? Let me see your hand. That's what I thought. All right, you can put them down. How many of you believe that that if you spend time with God on a daily basis, it will change your life? Let me see your hand. That's what I thought. You can put them down. How many of you believe that spending time with God is an absolute necessity every day? Let me see your hand. Oh. (laughs) You see, the problem is, The lives we live don't demonstrate the testimony we just gave. Here's what we think. We think spending time with God is a really, 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 really good option. I don't have to. I mean, it'd be good to. I'd be better for it if I did, but but I don't have to. I can get by today. That's why we live our lives sometimes void of the presence of God. We go through a whole day and don't even acknowledge His presence. We don't seek Him. We don't invite Him into the activities of our life. We don't carve out any time to be alone with Him. Because we do think in our heart of hearts it's optional. How many of you breathe every day? Let me see your hand. Yeah, right? Why? You stop breathing, you stop living. Matter of fact, breathing is so important, you don't even think about it. You just do it naturally. It's just become a part of how you live, right? You don't have to think. Now, you're thinking about it right now because I said it, but most of the time you're not going, okay, I took a breath. Yeah, let me take another one. Listen, God wants his relationship with you to be as natural as breathing. That's why Paul said, pray without ceasing. You know what that means, right? Never stop. You just live in an attitude of a constant awareness and communication with the God who loves you and has invited you into a love relationship with himself. How many of you eat every day? Let me see your hand. Yeah. Some of us more than once, right? Yeah. Why? You don't eat, you don't live. Listen to what Jesus said. Man! 
Man cannot live. He didn't say you might not. He said man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You know the problem? We think he said, apart from me, you can't do big things. Let a big thing come up in your life, and all of a sudden you get very aware of the presence of God. Well, why don't we see the need? Here's the bottom of the paradigm. It's one answer. It's one word. It's the word pride. Let me tell you what pride says to God. Pride says, God, I don't need you. I don't think any of us left our house this morning, got in the car and started the engine and said, God, I don't need you. But every day that you live your life without carving out time to be alone with him and without living your life moment by moment out of the overflow of intimacy with God, let me tell you what you're saying. God, I'm good today. God, I don't need you today. We have four children in our family, and three of them are now teenagers, but we have one that's eight, and all of them at a certain point in their life have gone through that early preschool, three, four, five-year-old stage of independence. Now, I've, I've learned with teenagers it comes back around again. It's not just a one-time deal, right? But at three, four, five, that, that first streak of I'm going to do it on my own begins to surface. And in my house, it usually surfaced around the tying of the shoes. We would reach that point one day where it was time for everybody to get in the car and leave and go somewhere. And, you know, you're trying to load everybody up, get them to the car. and Let's get your shoes on, Daddy! I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> and I got just enough spite in me to say, all right, help yourself. Because here's what I know. They don't have a clue. <laughs> There's no way they're tying that shoe. And they'll sit down with that shoe and they'll try and they'll wrap the string around their leg and around their foot and they can't get it on the right foot. You know, they, they finally do get them on and one's on the wrong foot and the other one's turned around backwards and the strings are all around and they, they, they frustrate themselves and sometimes the shoe winds up being thrown across the room and then after the, what seems like an eternity of frustration, they come back and say, Daddy, will you help me? And in that moment, you take the shoes and you sit down. And you take their little hands in yours. And you say, now you take it here and you tie you pull it tight. You put your finger here and, and you wrap the bow like this and then you pull. And as you let go, their little hands are holding those bows and you let go and they look up. Daddy! I tied my shoe. <laughs> and you know what you do in that moment. You go, look at there, baby. You tied your shoe. Now all the while, 
I know I tied their shoes. But listen, I did it through them. How many days? God, I don't need you today. I'm good. I'll make it today on my own. I've got willpower. I made a commitment at the conference. I'm determined. I signed the card. Let me show you the way the book of James describes it. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud. I don't have time to unpack it, but the word opposed there is a word that means to stiff arm. The word says, God says, you want to do it on your own? All right. Help yourself. And we try and we try. We make commitment after commitment. We get more determined and more determined. And yet every time we fall on our face, we live in frustration, we can't measure up, we can't live the life. Look what the verse goes on to say. But God gives what? To the what? Let me tell you what humility says. Humility says, God, I need you. Grace. That's a good word. Let me tell you what grace is. Grace is the supernatural enablement of God to do that which I could not do left to myself. Grace is God at work in me doing through me that which I could not accomplish on my own. Grace is God Tying my shoes through me. Let me flip this paradigm real quick. Put the word humility at the bottom there. When we approach God with an attitude that says, God, I need you, what does the word say he gives us? He gives us what? Grace, right? When he gives us grace, we see the need. When we see the need, we begin to spend time with God. And the more time we spend with God, guess what? the more we know God. And the more you know God, the more you what? Love God. And the more we love God, guess what happens? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience. You see the difference? Why is spending time with God so important? If you look at that sheet in front of you, at the top of one paradigm, it's the word sin. At the top of the other one, it's the word obedience. Why is spending time with God so important? Jesus said, if you love me. Now you understand when I say everything, everything God desires to do through your life, he'll do out of the overflow of what he's doing in your life. It's all about the relationship. Now, 
I want to show you something before we leave this, all right? I want to put the word temptation up here on the top of the screen. Now, what I'm about to show you works to deal with any temptation, all right? But we're specifically today talking about the temptation not to spend time with God daily. It's one we all face. Now, here's the way we typically respond to even a message like we've heard this morning. Oh, Pastor Vance, that is so right. Man, that is so right. I know I need to be spending time with God every day. And man, God's spoken to my heart today. So, Pastor Vance, starting tomorrow morning, I'm going to do it. Starting tomorrow morning, I'm going to spend time with God every day. I'm going to, matter of fact, this afternoon, I'm going to the Family Christian store. I'm buying a devotional so that in the morning when I get up, I can start spending time with God every day. I'm going to get online. I'm going to find me one of those read through the Bible in a year deals, and I'm committed to it. I am resolved. I'm going to do this. And for a little while, we, we have some temporary success. You may make it all week, seven days. You're going to come back in next week like this. Man, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. I spent time with God seven days this week. I got this thing licked. And then life's going to happen. You're going to miss a day. And you're going to be so discouraged. You're going to feel the sense of failure. And you're going to have that attitude that says, I'm so disappointed in myself. I could have done better than this. Lord, why? Why did I do it again? I made the same commitment. I prayed the same prayer. I I signed the same card. And Lord, here I am again. I ought to be a better Christian than this. Then you're going to come back to a service. You're going to go to a small group. You're going to attend a conference. You're going to hear some of this stuff again. And you're going to say, you know what? This time it's going to be different. I'm going to get me an accountability partner this time. I'm going to do it this time. This time, maybe you make it three weeks or a month. A whole month of spending time with God every day. You've got it down to a system. You've got folders and tabs and all the rest. You come to Pastor Tom and say, hey, Pastor Tom, I think I ought to be leading a small group on how to spend time with God because I've been a whole month and I ain't missed a day. And then the failure happens again. And now the discouragement's even worse because you've set yourself up as an example of how to beat this stuff. And now you feel like a hypocrite and a Pharisee because you've professed to be something that you're not living up to. I want to drop that circle in there. This is all centered around pride, and it's what Clyde called the merry-go-round of the flesh. And unfortunately, this is where most Christians live. Commitment to commitment, weekend to weekend, conference to conference, service to service, spiritual high to spiritual high. And here's what happens over time, and I know this because I lived it. The highs get higher, but the lows get lower. Because you need the, the emotional, spiritual high because the discouragement and the despondency is so great. You need something to tell you it's going to change. So you keep chasing these emotional moments, these spiritual mountaintops. You'll go to every conference you can find just to hopefully hear something different. And you'll make every commitment they ask you to make. And you'll come back and you'll try harder. And you'll be more determined. And you'll put every ounce of energy you have into it. And you'll still wind up falling flat on your face. 
and discouragement and despondency. Can I show you a better way today? Same temptation. Let me give you a new way. God, I can't do it. Lord, I know my heart. God, I I can't even spend time with you today unless you give me the grace. Listen, listen. One of the great dangers of attending a church and hearing somebody teach and preach is you have a tendency to put them on a pedestal. I want to I debunk that myth today, all right? Listen to me. My flesh is as wicked as anybody's in the room. If you knew the thoughts and desires of my heart, sometimes you'd never listen to me preach a word. You see, I'm not capable of living the Christian life any more than you are. Here's how bad it is in my whole heart. There are mornings I sit down to have my quiet time. I don't even want to open the book. Every distraction in the world starts coming into my mind. and God feels like he's a million miles away. Here's what I want you to hear me say today. That's normal. If you experience that at times, listen to me. That's normal. That's okay. He didn't expect you to be able to. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms is where the psalmist said, He is mindful that we are but dust. (laughs) That sets the expectation level pretty low. God didn't save me for what I could do for him. He saved me for what he wanted to do through me for his glory. And when I approach him with an attitude that says, God, I can't. Let me tell you how my quiet time starts a lot of days. Here's how it starts. Lord, I'm ashamed of it, but in my heart I really don't want to be here. But I know I need to be here. God, I know I need you. And what does James 4, 6 say when we approach him that way? He gives what? Grace. No wonder. No wonder the songwriter said it's amazing. When he gives grace, guess what I get? I get victory. When people come and say, man, what's, what's happening in your life? I don't say, well, I've got this great system and how I spend time with God and here's what you need to do and here are the steps and here's the pro. No, 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 no. When you understand this, when people come and they say, man, what's, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't look at me. It's not me. 
is Christ. He's tying the shoes. Listen, if there's anything of value you get out of being here week in and week out, don't look at us. It's not us. Teddy, myself, Travis, Tom, Jay, we, we don't bring anything to the table. We're just like you. It's just Christ in us. Now put that circle back in there. Because you see, when I say victory, it doesn't mean that we don't still experience the temptation. We do. It's daily. It's just now I'm handling it different. Instead of making more commitments and being more resolved and more determined, I just get more humble before God. You know what is amazing? The more you grow as a Christian, you don't realize how more spiritual you are. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you realize how unspiritual you are. See, a few years ago, I thought I was a little more spiritual than I do now. Because the more you know Him, unfortunately, the more you know you. Knowing Him's a good thing. Well, there's parts of me I wish I didn't know. But even when I know what I know about me, it drives me to intimacy with Him because it makes me appreciate His grace so much more. Let me show you one last thing and I'm done. I know we're long this morning, but it just is. Nothing to say about it, it just is. John 14, I read at the beginning, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I can't believe for 10 years of my Christian life I didn't see it because he didn't just say it one time in John 14, he said it four times. Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He said it right there again. He just reversed the order, but he said the same thing. He, he said, you see somebody keeping my commandments? Let me tell you what you see. You see somebody who's in love with me. Then listen to what he said. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. And will disclose myself to him. You know what that means? It means to make known. Here's what that means. When I begin to spend time with him and know him, and because I know him, I love him, and out of the overflow of love, I'm going to obey him. Here's what he says. I'm just going to make myself more known to you. And look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You hear how he just keeps leveling up? The first one just said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The second one said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'm going to make myself more known to you. This one said, If you love me and keep my commandments, man, I and the Father, we're going to make our abode with you. I, I call it a man or woman with God all over him. Let me show you the last one. Look at verse 31. Jesus said, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father's commanded me. Do you hear it? What we're talking about, knowing God and loving God and out of the overflow of loving obey. You know what that is? It's just Christ-likeness. Jesus just said of himself, out of the overflow of a love relationship with the Father, I, I keep his commandments. 
You see how he modeled for us? Now, if you're hearing me this morning, I want you to hear this. Come. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you easy and my burden is light you will know the truth and the truth will set you free what needs to happen today for some of you today is the day you stop trying and you start trusting